This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. You may be listening to 88.7 for the first time through the internet or locally. And if this is your first time to the Bible line for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions. And if you have a particular question as it relates to God's word, it's under its interpretation or application or a challenge or facing in your marriage or family or ministry and you'd like biblical encouragement, well, if we can help, we will do the best that we can. Uh, All you need to do is email us here directly into the studio, and you can do so at TBL. That stands for The Bible Line, tbl at wagp.net, and we'll receive your question directly. Or you can call us again. The 843 exchange is 525-1859. And when you call at 525-1859, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question to Deb, who's in the opposite studio here. Anyway, it's always great to be here, Rick. Uh, Let's go ahead and get started this morning. All right. We've got a live caller on the uh, line here, so let's go to them. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Good morning. I have a question. It may be kind of trivial, but it sticks in my my head a little bit. uh... Romans eleven thirteen in the King James Bible says, For I speak to the Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles. In the New American Standard, which I use now, it says, I speak to the Gentiles, for I am, <clears throat> I am an apostle, an apostle, so the apostle to the Gentiles. It's actually quite a big statement, I think. I'm just wondering why. All right, let me, uh, let me open up Romans uh, chapter 11 and verse 13. Uh, Rick, would you bring up the King James translation for me on the screen? Because uh, I don't have that in front of me. Uh, let me first read it from the New American Standard. By the way, let me set this in the context. Uh, Romans, and it's very critical to understanding this whole section of Scripture. Uh, the book of Romans really divides into three sections. There's the doctrinal section, which is chapters 1 through 8, where he deals with uh justification and sanctification, glorification, and then there is the national section, which is 9 through 11, and then what we might often call the applicational section, beginning in chapter 12, where he says, therefore, uh, and here's how you're going to apply my epistle, but 9, 10, and 11 is dealing with the nation of Israel, and he says here, "I am, but I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. And then um, the New King James reads it this way, For I speak to you, Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. That's almost identical to uh, the New American Standard. The Old King James, uh, and we're looking here at uh, Romans eleven eleven. Rick, um, bring up verse 11. It says, I say then, have, excuse me, let's see, 
Yeah, there it is. I say, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation has come onto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. Um, yeah, definitely is a difference in reading, but I think the best reading is what you're going to see reflected here in the New King James as in the New American Standard. So the, let me read the New King James and just share a little bit of, yeah. And, and Pastor, the caller was also inquiring about 1113. 1113 as well. Oh, but I'm speaking to you, oh yeah, who are Gentiles in as much as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. And the King James says, for I speak to you Gentiles, in as much as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my office. Uh, for I speak to you Gentiles, for I speak to you Gentiles. So the start of the verse in the King James, and um, let me pull up the NAS here again. Um, yeah, I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. I speak to you Gentiles. So that's identical, same meaning. I speak to you Gentiles. I speak to you who are Gentiles. Okay, same same meaning. Though I would say the NASB, I've pulled up the Greek New Testament here in front of me. It's a little more literal here in the NASB. Some would say a little more wooden, uh, but it is definitely more literal here than the in the King James. And then uh, it says, inasmuch as I am an apostle of the Gentiles... The NAS says, inasmuch as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, okay, that reads virtually identical. Um, and then the rest, I magnify mine office, and I magnify my, off, my ministry. So um, I would say that there is virtually no difference between the King James here and the NAS. And, yeah, I'm here. Go ahead. Okay, in, in the King James Version... I guess you'd say the old King James Version. Says, yes. So I speak to you Gentiles in as much as I am the, it doesn't say am, it says the apostle of the Gentiles. That was my question. Ah, the the articular. Okay, well, thank you for that clarification. So um, let me, I lost my place here in my Greek New Testament. I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles in as much as I am an apostle. So there is no article in the, and I'm reading from the majority text, which is what the King James was written off of, and there is no article. It says, Ego ami apostolos ethon. Um, literally, I am an apostle of Gentiles. So the King James uh, puts the article in, and that is certainly an interpretive um, choice that those translators made in putting that article in. But the article is not contained in the Greek New Testament. And I should say that, again, here in the New King James, inasmuch as I am an apostle, so they followed it more literally. Here's the thing that you have to realize, and this is the challenge of Bible interpretation. Uh, There are a couple of goals most English translations have. One is certainly readability, and the other is literalness. The King James and the New American Standard put literalness over readability, where you have some other translations that are not dynamic equivalents like the two I just mentioned, but more of a fluid equivalent, which would be like the New International Version. And so they put readability over literalness. But I will say, if you read, I have a a memorial, um, not a memorial, an anniversary edition of the 1611 King James Bible. I, I purchased it when they were celebrating the 400th anniversary of the King James Bible. And in it is the original introduction 
to the King James, which is very informative, and I'm sure you could find it online and with a, a modern update because there are some archaic words in there that are a little bit challenging. Uh, and, of course, if you read an original 1611 King James, uh, the introduction that's found there would read differently even in terms of how the letters are formed because the letters look a little bit differently. So in my anniversary edition, they took those factors into account. But what's interesting is in that introduction, which, again, I'm sure you could find online, they tell you right off that uh, they were challenged with some of the meanings of certain Greek and Hebrew words, largely the Hebrew, less the Greek, um, and that they would be, they acknowledged in the original 1611 that there would be a need for updates and changes. But they also put in there, and I'll comment on that in a second, but they also put in there that they were trying to uh, reflect the magnificence of the king's English. And I will say there is a certain beauty to the King James in terms of how it reads sometimes in terms of English prose that maybe the NASB does not fully capture in the same way because they are a little bit more literal. So sometimes the King James will add an article because it's appropriate in the King's English where sometimes they leave out an article. And you can even hear that today in modern British English. Like if I were a Brit, I I might say, well, I'm going to hospital. And we would say in American English, you're not going to hospital, you're going to the hospital. Um, We add the article in modern English, at least in American English, because that's the way it forms and the way we think it should be uh, expressed. Though when you say I'm going to hospital or you say I'm going to the hospital, um, usually in English when you add the article, then you're referring to a specific hospital where someone might say, well, I'm, I'm, go- I'm going to the hospital. They may not have made a decision yet, whether it's Savannah Memorial or Beaufort Memorial or wherever it may be, but they add the article because that's proper American English, but it's improper British English. So when you read the Old King James, and by the way, I should say that the 1611 edition came out and they printed it. In mid-year, they printed the 1611B edition. In other words, while they had printed the first edition because they were so anxious to get it out, uh, they continued to work on the text and they updated certain words or they came to a deeper understanding of certain words. They were using the Bishop's Bible, but they were also largely dependent on, especially in the Old Testament, on Jewish rabbis and others who were trying to help them to understand Hebrew because their language skills were a little more challenged. Uh, today, you know, 400 years later, because remember, Bible translation really uh, had been way out of sync for hundreds and hundreds of years. The, the most translated edition of the Bible, of course, is the Latin Vulgate, and that was virtually the only translation for a thousand years. And so you didn't have people who studied Hebrew or Greek. There just wasn't a lot of need for it. They studied Latin. They learned Latin. That was the language of the scholars, And so when some of the earlier Bibles began to come out by Wycliffe and Tyndale and others, uh, those guys had to go back and learn the language, and some of them were largely dependent on trying to understand what the language meant. Even when Jerome did the, the, the Latin Vulgate translation, he lived in Bethlehem in a cave. I've been to the cave where he actually lived for 35 years. And he was there because he wanted to meet 
Jewish people to help him to understand the Hebrew translation of the Bible so that he could put it into Latin. So I would say here, this is not like some textual issue. Um, This is purely a translation issue in terms of how you can best express it. And I would say the New King James, and which, again, went off of the same uh, Greek manuscripts that the Old King James went off of, and the New American Standard. And by the way, there is no debate in terms of manuscript issues here. They read it most accurately. And so, for I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle, that's the way the New King James reads, reads it, to the Gentiles. Anyway, right. uh, interesting question. Hadn't had one like that in a while. Let's go to the next. All right. Uh, John, we've actually got a couple of questions from Maine. Uh, from Hollowell, Maine, John P. writes, Pastor, I'm working my way through Exodus, and I just read the account in Exodus 24, 9 to 11, when Moses, Aaron, and the others saw God. I am confused. Later in Exodus 33:20, God clearly says that no one can see his face and live. I know there are no contradictions in Scripture, yet I'm having trouble reconciling these verses. All right, let me turn to the Exodus passage first, Exodus 24. And I'm reading here, as he requested, verses 9 through 11. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire, as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. And they saw God, and they ate, and they drank, kind of a communion service of sorts. Now, it is true that in the, um, a little bit later here in Exodus, and I'm turning over to Exodus 33:20, 20, um, God said this, you cannot see my face for no one can see me and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me and you shall stand there on the rock and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. So, again, God said no one can see him and live. And Moses never saw God in his full glory. He only saw a visual representation of him. In fact, um, this is a passage that often comes up with it. If I can find it here, it's in the book of Numbers. See, here it is in uh, verse 8. Um, God is saying here to the people of Israel, hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. And again, the word here for form is Uh, a likeness. It's a representation. So what we have going on here is not a contradiction at all, which you acknowledge because there obviously can be no contradictions in the Bible. And so when Moses spoke face to face with God, uh, God is using a figure of speech. He's using what we call an anthropomorphism. Uh, Anthropos is our word for man. And so sometimes God will apply human characteristics to himself. He even does it to objects when the trees clap their hands for joy. Trees obviously don't have hands. Well, neither does God, not the first member of the Godhead, and neither did Jesus before he incarnated himself. God is spirit. And so in terms of God describing his face or his hand, or th- that's not to be taken literally. Those are idioms. And 
And early, in fact, in verse 11 of this same chapter, and you didn't bring that up, but it's a good verse. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. So that makes it even more challenging. So, but the point is, is that God had a personal relationship. Uh, if I, um, if I'm speaking to someone that I don't really know and their back is to me, I don't know how they're responding. I don't really know how they're reacting. When you look into a person's face, the person's face reveals a whole lot about their character, their mood, their personality. Uh, Proverbs repeatedly talks about a man's countenance. And so if we catch a glimpse of a person from behind, we're, we're left without a lot of you know critical, valuable information. So when God says in 3320 of Exodus, you cannot see my face for no one can see me and live, he was saying that as I fully am in all of my glory and all of my fullness, no man could tolerate it. No human could possibly absorb, you know, what God is like in his fullness and, and live. And even the Lord Jesus, he tabernacled among us. He, he incarnated himself in human flesh. Um, if we saw even the Lord Jesus before he incarnated himself as a second member of the Godhead, we could not look at him and live. So again, there's no contradiction here. What we have is what we call a theophany, where God uh, does some visual expression of himself, just like the Son of Man would come as the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. We call that a Christophany where before Bethlehem, Christ uh, would show up as the angel of the Lord. And the point, though, is that Moses had an intimate relationship with God that God did not have with most people. And Moses' life is summarized as one of the most humble men who walks on the earth. And God, because of that, expressed the dimension of grace to this man and allowing him even to see a glimpse of glory that he did not... um, um, that he he was able to see that most people would not. Even Isaiah, there in the throne room of God, God, God is being covered by a group, a class of angels to protect Isaiah from fully seeing God in all of his glory. For if he had seen God in all of his glory, he would have dropped dead as it was. He was absolutely overwhelmed by just getting a glimpse of God's glory, so to speak. And, oh, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. So... Great, great question. I hope that helps. Very good. 843-525-1859. We'll get to that other question from Maine in just a second, but we always give priority to live callers, and we have one standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Well, well good morning, gentlemen. Hey, how are you doing yeah, today, my brother? Question. Yeah, if, if Hugh Hefner wants to give $50 million to the Southern Baptist Convention, should they take it? Or, those, or the Southern Baptist Convention would say, well, the Lord would sanctify the money, or the, the, Lord, so the Lord of the cattle to so 10,000 hills. And uh, I got another quick comment, too. Should we pray, uh, I think we should pray for Hillary Clinton so the Lord could give her a vision when it uh, was hell, is like she probably would wake up middle of the night screaming, and she probably converted to, 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 to Christianity and be the pro life advocate for pro life. Well, you asked some really good questions, and testimony is important. I'm doing a course right now on Wednesday evenings on um, on God and finances, and we've already covered a couple of sections in the course. We've done with the section of stewardship, and 
we were speaking about how we're stewards, meaning that this is not my money, it's all God's, and we'll give an account, not for 10%, but 100%. And then we have dealt with the subject of giving, and right now we're exploring what the Bible says about saving. With that said, last week I was describing the fact that Jesus refers to worldly riches, to money, as unrighteous mammon. Uh, The newer translations say worldly riches, but literally the Greek New Testament says unrighteous mammon. So every dollar in your pocket is stained somewhere. Uh, If you have uh, 10 $1 bills, yeah, that dollar bill, uh, that actually um, passed through an abortionist's hand, and then he went to the local... um, you know, convenience store and bought a Coca-Cola with it. You got it back in your change. And my point is, is that every dollar somehow is stained, but appearance is important. And so let's just, um, obviously, you Hefner is dead, so he's kind of a non-issue. But let's just say Planned Parenthood wanted to give a gift, and I can't imagine that they would any more than you Hefner would want to give $50 million to the Southern Baptist Convention. But if I knew it was coming from them, and it's coming at the expense of having murdered uh, tens of thousands of babies in their local clinic, I would say keep your money because I would be more concerned about their soul than I would be about their money. And I would have a greater responsibility to call a U Hefner or some director of a local abortion clinic to repent than I would be to take their money. So, no, I wouldn't want it. Um, with that said, to... Go back to your comment on Hillary Clinton. Oh, yes. Uh, the University of Alabama returns a $21.5 million gift. The donor urged a boycott over the abortion law. You want to comment on that, Rick, that article? Well, I saw I, that a week I, or so ago. I was just so impressed by the stand that the people at the University of Alabama took. Uh, $21.5 million is not chump change. No, it's not. They um, The heartbeat bill that passed in Alabama says that uh, essentially – it is illegal to have an abortion in Alabama. And um, so this attorney from Miami, I can't, uh, Hugh Culverhouse Jr., who was a big donor. and uh, He was going to get his name written on the law school, too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He had given $21.5 million to the school and, they, uh, uh, and then chided them, uh, chided Alabama about the position and uh, recommended people boycott Alabama. And anyway, they... Uh, they said, keep your dirty Alabama. money. Keep your dirty money. Yeah, yeah right. exactly. I, you know, I am really impressed with the body of Christ in Alabama and the profound impact that they've had in many institutions and across that state. They are probably the number one most Christianized state right now in the union. It used to be Texas, but then we had uh, Rick Perry, who was governor, who did a great job as governor, but one of the things that he did is he invited all these corporations from California and other states to come and set up their businesses there, gave them incredible tax incentives. And so I was in Dallas a couple weekends ago, and it's gone from like 1 million to 6 million people, and the place is just like a traffic nightmare. And my point is, is the whole fabric of the state has changed. That hasn't happened to Alabama yet. So they're still very, very Christianized, and they have a lot of uh, steel in their spine to refuse the money. Obviously, we should pray for Hillary Clinton and any other person, because God has compassion on Hillary Clinton. God loves Hillary Clinton. Christ died for Hillary Clinton. Is Hillary Clinton lost? Of course she is. Uh, I don't care if she's a Methodist. I don't care if her husband was a member of a Southern Baptist church. 
the Southern Baptist Church her husband was a member of, who was liberal. Um, it was Cooperative Baptist, which is the liberal branch of Baptists who broke out of the SBC, and they didn't have the uh, spiritual integrity to put the president of the United States under church discipline for living an evil, wicked life, even when twice over the partial birth abortion bill came on his desk and he refused to sign it. And, of course, that was a Southern Baptist member. They're actually dual lines, Southern Baptist, Cooperative Baptist, but that church had no integrity. Listen, a man is known by his fruits, and Hillary Clinton is obviously lost, and she needs Christ as her personal Savior. And sometimes, you know, we rag on these people, and we do so without a sense of compassion in our hearts, but by the grace of God, there go I. Some people are like Hillary Clinton because they grew up in liberal churches. They're indoctrinated by liberal theologians and others, and uh, they were persuaded by those people. But listen, there are others who grow up in the same kinds of churches. When they hear a clear presentation of the gospel, God changes everything. Obviously, Hillary has not yet received the mind of Christ, which is something that you receive at regeneration. When the Bible uses that term in 1 Corinthians, it's your ability to be able to absorb and uh, understand spiritual truth, something a natural man cannot do. And so she needs our prayer because she has certainly promoted evil, whether it's the LGBTQ plus plus zero zero twenty seven more letters they put after that, or whether it's her uh, conviction that, yes, we should murder little babies in the womb. And um, that that's just evil beyond evil. And how a Christian could vote for any politician, I don't care if they're Republican, Democrat, Independent, who espouses that point of view, then they are going to have to give a serious account to the Lord someday for that. All right. Thank you, caller. Um, Not to go down a rabbit trail, but since you're on the subject of the SBC on uh, your message Sunday, you alluded just very briefly to something called intersectionality. Yeah. Uh, What is that all about? So um, the Southern Baptist Convention passed a resolution on critical race theory slash intersectionality uh, which I would say the average uh, delegate that was there, they have messengers, and messengers are determined by how large your church is and so on. And um, so, no, I, I take that back. Every church has two messengers. It's not dependent on how large your church is. But you send messengers from your church, and those people represent your church, and they can vote at the Southern Baptist Convention. In fact, my, my daughter-in-law was there representing her church, uh, from Chevrolet, Maryland. And I would say that the average messenger there at the SBC had no idea what they were voting on. And so, oh, yeah, I'm not a racist. You know, I don't want to vote in anything critical race theory. Yeah, you know. Um, but it's much more than that. It's unfortunately a resolution that passed, and it's basically using worldly, literally Marxist techniques for um, evaluating how we as Christians should operate. So with intersectionality, to answer the second part of your uh, your comment here, they say there are, are things that intersect in a person's life. Let's say a person is, um, is African-American. Let's say they're not only African-American. Let's say they are gay. 
let's say they're a gay African-American, and let's say they're not only gay and African-American but poor. They would say, well, those are three things that go against or potentially need to be understood. So some wouldn't say go against. In fact, most who are engaged in intersectionality would say these are issues of sensitivity that we need to embrace in order to give that person favoritism or a chance. And they would also say that uh, some of the challenges that people are facing need not only to be understood, but we need to go the extra mile and maybe hire this person who um, has all these social intersections that have come into their life. It's just, it's a lot of mumbo jumbo. I don't know how else to say it. When you had responded to a letter I had sent you earlier in the week, and I had to look that up, and it, it looks like what they're doing is they're subordinating the, uh, the, the, for lack of a better word, social gospel to the actual true gospel, the true word of God. Well, it is, and and, and it's it's the social gospel walking in to the Southern Baptist Convention. The father of the social gospel was a guy by the name of Walter Rauschenbusch. He lived in the late 19th century, and he basically said, just to define some terms for maybe some of our listeners to for whom this is new, he said the gospel of Jesus Christ was not the death, burial, and the resurrection, but the gospel is to reform the culture, to reform society. And so our mission is to oh, overcome racism. Our mission is to feed the poor. Our mission is to educate the ignorant. That's not the mission of the church. Now, there are certainly things that flow from the true gospel, the death, burial, and the resurrection, where when people are saved and they grow in grace, they're no longer racist because racism is the root attitude that I'm better than you. And when you understand that the ground is level at the cross, that changes everything. And so, like, Southern Baptists are trying to say, well, you know, we've, you know, our churches are segregated. Let me tell you why your churches are segregated. It has nothing to do with passing a resolution. It has everything to do with either, A, you're not preaching the gospel of grace clearly, or if you are and people are being saved, they haven't grown much in grace. You grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ Jesus. And so they say, well, what we're going to do is, you know, we want to be sensitive to people of other races. So, you know, we'll switch pulpits with a Hispanic church or a black church, and that will make everybody feel good about themselves, that we're really racially sensitive and all that nonsense. That, that's not, that's not the, the answer. The answer is you grow your people in the Scriptures, and as they grow in Scripture, if, if they are in a community where there's a multiplicity of races and economic levels and everything, then the church will reflect that because the people no longer just invite people to their church who are like themselves because they have a much bigger, bigger vision. So I was commenting on Dr. Jeffers' article that you sent me, and he raised a couple of issues, not the most critical ones, so. And probably in wisdom he didn't because if you're being interviewed on Fox News or National, you, you bring up some of these things, you're immediately dubbed as a racist or this or that, and uh, it's just misunderstood. Uh, but those are really some of the most critical things that came out of the Southern Baptist Convention is that they are making a progression towards the social gospel, which is very dangerous because what Southern Baptists have been known for historically, and obviously I'm, I, I'm, Southern Baptists are very important to me. My ordination is as a Southern Baptist pastor, though I pastor an independent church, but my ordination is with a Southern Baptist church in Johnsonville, South Carolina. 
Um, and they have a responsibility if I am ever, you know, heretical or anything else to withdraw my ordination from their church. So I'm obviously, I went, one of the seminaries I went to, I did my doctorate at the Southern Baptist Seminary. So, and I served on staff of one of the larger Southern Baptist churches in the country as the pastor of evangelism. Um, but I say all that to say that what is happening is very dangerous, and not just there, but on the gender issues. And there's always a slide, they go together. When you become weak on gender issues and you are afraid to take a stance for what is right, and again, Dr. Jeffress didn't really even address that so much in his article, um, in, or at least in his interview, and their comment, maybe, maybe they did and they just didn't write about it, want to give the guy the benefit of the doubt. But the, the most dangerous thing that is happening is it's begun with the compromise on gender issues. So Beth Moore, who's you know getting all these extra revelational experiences, God said to me, Beth, this is what you need to do. And she goes on rambling, you know, rambling about things that God said to, to her directly and her preaching in churches on Sunday morning over mixed audiences. Look, when you, when you don't want to offend people, then you begin adopting all of the methodologies of the culture. And critical race theory, intersectionality, that all comes out of the culture. It basically says these are tools the church needs to employ to be discerning and helpful, and they're saying the Scripture is not sufficient to help us to do what we need to do. All right, very good. Yeah. Well, I mentioned that we've got a a couple of questions from Maine, and here's the second one. Chuck from Bowdoin, Maine, writes, Can you help give guidance in finding a biblically sound church? I live in New England with my family. That includes young children, and we've been unable to find one we're sure of. One of the most recent we attended had the bishop of the church as a guest speaker, and his sermon was all about who is Jesus to you, because Jesus can be different for everyone, and I want you to think about who you want for him to be, which he said was the same sermon his wife was preaching at another church the same day someplace else. We're just visiting a church. uh, We're visiting church after church without the real sense of what we need to do to find the right place and how to see through nice words to determine if it is a true church appropriate for our family. Thank you. Well, I don't know the town of Bowdoin very well. Uh, so it'd be difficult for me to like specifically say, Hey, you should try such and such a church. But if I were trying to help you to find a church, I would type in, you know, churches, Bowdoin, Maine and start there. I would obviously eliminate some churches right off. I can almost guarantee though you don't say it, that you're in a United Methodist church because the two leading denominations in the state of Maine are Baptists and Methodists, and you mentioned a bishop, and so typically the whole authority structure where you have something above the local assembly where you redefine the term bishop, not just the way it's used in the New Testament, a word interchangeable for uh, pastor or elder, but kind of a super pastor or a super elder who moves preachers around and things like that. So my guess is, is you're in a United Methodist Church, but just from what you said in the um, email here that you've sent to us. Who is Jesus to you? You're right. You're discerning. That's like a really stupid question. God could care less who you think Jesus is. What you should care about is what he says Jesus is in his word. And then what are you going to do with Jesus? 
So, yeah, this preacher left it really open-ended. Um, it's kind of like the person says, well, what does this passage mean to you? And we sit around and, you know, we meditate on our navel and we give our, you know, stupid little answers. The question is, what does the Scripture say? What did it mean to the original audience? And then how do I apply it to my life? It's not, you don't ask the question, what does it mean to me? Until you first ask, what does the text mean? And then when I understand what it means, then I can make proper application. Added to that, you mentioned in your email here from Bowdoin, Maine, that the the bishop's wife is out preaching somewhere. So you know right off, he's way off in terms of his commitment to the integrity of Scripture, doesn't believe in the gender roles as God has dictated them in the Word of God. And again, for all I know, he's lost. He could very well be lost. Sounds like he is lost. It sounds like he's a blind guide. And unfortunately, while Baptists at one time and Methodists were really a stronghold in the state of Maine, now for the most part, the Baptist and Methodist churches in the state of Maine are very liberal theologically. And I say that with a caveat that there are some bright exceptions here and there. But take a Methodist church, for instance, you know, because there the churches are not autonomous, but there is a connectivity that Baptists don't have. Baptists, while they work together to further the cause of Christ, they also recognize autonomy, that there is no structure above the church or another church next to them that tells them what to do or how to behave or how to spend their money or anything like that that those are independent decisions that they make as a local assembly. Uh, Whereas Methodists, there's an interconnectiveness, and obviously there's a huge problem in the United Methodist Church. My guess is that I'd ask this bishop, well, what what do you think about the fact that our denomination didn't pass the LGBTQ thing? Well, in all practicality, they did. Understand they did in the American church. The only thing that kept them from this resolution being passed was the African church that the Methodist Church in Africa, there's a lot of born-again brothers, unlike the pastors here in the States, and they were dogmatic that we were not going to allow this sin into our church and give an endorsement to it. We'll welcome these people because we want to win them to Jesus, but we're not going to welcome the sin with these people. We're going to call them to repent. And so now you see all this backlash from the vote that took place a few months ago and people, you know, trying to figure out what they're going to do in light of the fact that their denomination has not officially sanctioned the LGBTQ lifestyle. So you're you're in the wrong place, and I wouldn't go back the next Sunday. I'd be done with that church, Chuck and Bowdoin, Maine, and I'd start looking for another one because you're already in a, a church that even without me knowing a whole lot about it, if all I knew was that this bishop's wife was out preaching somewhere, I'd know you're in a lousy church, and you're sitting under lousy leadership, and you need to be looking. You might call WCBI in Maine. That's the Christian radio station that we broadcast out of. Is it WCBI or BCI? WBCI. They're out of Portland, Maine. And so um, my guess is, is Chuck's listening to me out of the Portland station. And you might call the station manager and say, hey, do you know of any conservative Bible-believing churches in my area that maybe you do public service announcements for, et cetera? And he might be able to help you in that realm and give you a starting place. But, you know, if I had to drive 30 miles, I have a brother who lives in Vermont, and he would often, 
over the years. He's been up there 40 years. He'd drive 25 miles to go to the church because very similar kinds of choices like you're facing in the state of Maine. And you just go where you have to go. It's the Lord's day, and you certainly don't want to be bringing your wife and your children under just bad leadership. And this is lousy, stinking, rotten leadership that you're sitting under, and I I would definitely go to another church. All right, very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and we did get a caller who dictated their question, wanting to let us know that they were recently asked, what is God's law? And this listener wasn't quite sure how to answer it. Would you please address what is God's law, why did he give it, and what is the law's purpose? Okay, so I'm assuming you're, by asking this question, without being able to dialogue with you face-to-face, that when you're using the terms God's law, you're probably using it in reference to the Mosaic law. And so it is true that there was a time prior to the coming of Moses that there was not a codified law that God had established to set apart the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. With that said, there are laws that Moses gave that have as much application today as they did when Moses wrote them. But there were many laws that were part of what we typically refer to as the ceremonial law. So some of the Mosaic law is eternal. It has as much application for today. Um, Nowhere in the New Testament does it say I shouldn't marry my first cousin, but God gave some parameters that I shouldn't marry my first cousin. Uh, I shouldn't marry my sister, a close blood relative. God gave some parameters that has as much application for today, though it's never mentioned in the New Testament. Why? Because that's not part of the ceremonial law. That's part of God's moral eternal law. Uh, There are laws like against a person being intimate with an animal. It's called bestiality. It's not mentioned anywhere in the New Testament, but I can tell you, God said it was an abomination then, and it is an abomination today. In fact, anything that you read where God says it's an abomination, I can promise you it's still today. So one of the functions, though, of the law that God gave, especially the ceremonial law, was to point us to Christ. In the ceremonial law, there were images, there were types, there were shadows of what God promised to do through the Messiah. Uh, Our obedience to the ceremonial law has never been able to save us any more than our obedience to the moral law of God was able to save us. When God said, thou shall not, very often what you saw was that you were not doing what you should have been doing. And so when Paul uh, speaks to the church at Rome and he speaks of the purpose of the law, let me just turn over here to Romans chapter 3, and he makes this incredible statement. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, and he's referring to the Old Testament law that was given to Moses, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Paul has just quoted from the law, and he's dealing with, in Romans 3, um, those people who think that somehow I can be made right before God by obeying the law. And most people think that way today. They may not call it the law, but you say, well, what do you think you have to do to go into heaven? And they'll talk about good works, man trying to be saved through human effort. And no, you cannot. And no one has kept the Decalogue. You know, we may think, well, I've never committed adultery, but if I've lusted in my heart against someone of the opposite of sex, I've committed adultery. You may say, well, I've never murdered anyone. Well, if... Um, 
you've hated your brother, then you are a murderer, God says. So he deals not just with the external dimension of the law, but the internal issues of the heart. And that's what Jesus focuses on in the Sermon on the Mount. And therefore, he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. Because the scribes and the Pharisees would often claim obedience to the external law, but there are issues of the heart. So he says, um, every mouth will be closed because of God's law. Everyone will be silent because the law is going to condemn them. Why? Because by the works of the law, no flesh, no person will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In other words, the law shows you that you are a sinner. A few chapters later, let me turn over to Romans chapter 7 and verse 7. What then shall we say is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have known, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the Lord said, you shall not covet. And so the law really showed me how sinful I was. If I desired something that was someone else's property and I coveted it in my heart, well, the law convicted me, not only the law that was written in my heart, which the Gentiles knew, according to Genesis, uh, Romans 2.15, even though they didn't have the written law, the law of God was written into their hearts, their conscience, either accusing them or defending them. But I also had the law written on stone tablets. And so the law pointed to the fact that I was a sinner. And so, for instance, when Paul writes to the church at Galatia, and they have false teachers who come into the church, and the implications was was not in terms of the Galatians' salvation, because they had already believed on that, but there were great implications in reference to their sanctification. And so he reminds them that the law doesn't even help save. In fact, he says the law is the schoolmaster. It is our tutor to lead us to faith in Christ in, in, Genesis, in Galatians chapter 3. So... Um, he says, uh, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, curses everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified, save by the law before God is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. And so, again, he's, he's honing it very specifically here that the law and your obedience in no way can save an individual. Does the uh, non-ceremonial law have application for today? And I would say yes, because Paul would say, for what the law could not do, now I'm reading Romans 8, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. How? Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Why? So that, here's the reason, one of the great so that, or in order that statements, the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So you're not saved by the obedience, your obedience to the law, but once you are saved, God calls you to obey his law, his moral law. And his moral law is timeless. Even if it's not mentioned in the New Testament, if it's part of God's moral law, it has full application for today. The ceremonial law uh, were shadows. Uh, They are I have no application for today except to teach us prophetically how Jesus fulfilled those shadows and to help people, especially who are Jewish, to see how the Lord Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah and is the Messiah and fulfilled the shadows and the typologies and the prophecies that were found in the Old Testament ceremonial law and in other places. All right, very good. We had a question that was dictated. Um, 
And, uh, oh, we've got a live caller. Hold on one second, please. Let's go to the live caller. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bi- on the Bible line. Go ahead. We're listening. Hi. Yeah. Hi. Um, I have a question. I was wondering, why did God allow, why did God, if he knew that Adam and Eve were going to sin, then why did he allow them to sin? Okay. So that's a good question. And, um, you know, if God is omniscient, and God knows the beginning from the end, which he does, uh, then why did he even create man knowing as an omniscient God that man would sin? Well, God's foreknowledge, God's prior knowledge, and that's a word that's kind of interesting in and of itself, foreknowledge, because people like to manipulate that word uh, to um, say that we really don't have free will. And so God chose us according to his foreknowledge, but it's interesting to look at the word prognosco, prior knowledge, pre-knowledge, literally, uh, in the New Testament, and it's used many times just of prior knowledge. Paul talks about the prior knowledge people had about him and so on. Um, But God having foreknowledge, God being omniscient, God knowing the beginning and the end, in no way ever mitigates, changes our free will. And so for man to truly be free, he had to have a choice, And so if God created Adam and Eve in such a way that all they could do was obey, and he certainly could have created them in that way, then they would be robotic and not really made in his image. Part of being made in the Imago Dei, Latin for the image of God, but an important Latin phrase that you will see written in commentaries and uh, other places The fact that we're made in the Imago Dei, one aspect of that is that we truly have free will. So in Genesis 2, God said, from any tree in the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And so, yes, God knew that, but God gave Adam a free will. Uh, Did God mitigate against Adam's free will? No, Adam could have eaten from the tree of life and sealed his destiny forever. But he chose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what God expressly forgave, forbid. God didn't, you know, orchestrate the circumstances like the great puppet master where he was pulling the strings and said, well, I'm going to make Adam eat from this tree so that I can then enact a a plan of redemption. No, Adam was truly, genuinely free, and he could have eaten from the other tree, but he didn't. And by the way, we can't dump on Adam while we're here and say, well, you know, I'm downstream of Adam, and therefore I have a sin nature. It's not really my fault. It's God's fault, because God created Adam, and now I inherit his free will. I mean, his uh, sinful nature. No, Romans 5.12 says, when Adam sinned, all sinned. Uh, We don't use the word much in our Western culture, but some nations of the world speak of solidarity. Um, The word became popular in America in the 1980s when Lech Wałęsa was the leader of the solidarity movement in Poland. And it was a movement of people who wanted to basically overthrow communism. And they said, the the only way we can overthrow this is if we stick together, because there's enough of us. And it's kind of like what the people in Hong Kong are trying to do right now to protect their freedoms from Beijing, is that if we just stick together and there's enough of us, they're not going to be able to kill us all. They're not going to be able to machine gun us all down if we stick together. And so we speak of the solidarity of a people. Well, the Bible teaches the solidarity of the human race in Adam, 
such that I was there with Adam. Don't ask me to explain it. I take it by faith because God reveals it. When Adam sinned, I sinned in and with Adam. And that's why everyone downstream of Adam, something that evolution, by the way, wants to deny. You see, if you, if you have death and disease and evolution prior to the creation of two people, then, um, you know, you basically erase the whole biblical pattern of how sin entered into the world. Death came as a result of sin. It didn't happen before man sinned. So again, Adam was totally free. God knew that he would sin, but he was not the great puppet master. God made Adam, and Adam had a real choice, and you and I with Adam chose to disobey God, and that's why we're in the mess we're in today. All right. Thank you, caller. I think we've got time for one more question, about two and a half minutes. Um, You mentioned that your children and grandchildren came to Christ at early ages. Do you feel that many Christians overlook children and witnessing to them because They just don't think children can understand the gospel. Shouldn't we witness and win even young children to Christ? And doesn't this show the need for vacation Bible school? Well, it's a great question. Let me comment on first vacation Bible school. It's happening next week, so we will not have the Bible line next Tuesday because vacation Bible school will be taking place from 9 to noon, June the 25th through the 28th. And if you are listening to me and you do not have a church home, and you would like to register your children, you can go to uh, Buford, B-E-A-U-F-O-R-T-V-B-S dot com, and you can type in the code FREE, F-R-E-E-V-B-S, FREE VBS, and you can register your children for free. It's $5 a child, $15 maximum for a family. It's like sending your kids to camp. Believe me, um, we spend over $10,000 as a church to put the Vacation Bible School on that we do uh, to provide the best for the children. We, we just, you know, recover one-twentieth one of what we uh, invest, but we're investing in the lives of children. And so to answer your question, no, you should never, ever, ever undermine uh, what God says about children because Jesus likens the ch- kingdom of God to little children. That's why when little children die, they go to heaven. Christ could not use an illustration that was wrought with evil or untruth in it. Every illustration that Christ uses in a parable or in his teaching, he who is the truth only uses truth to teach truth. And Jesus tells us that children have a great capacity uh, for the things of God. You don't meet a little four-year-old and say, I'm an agnostic. You don't meet a five-year-old and says, I'm an atheist. No, uh, there is a tenderness there that a little child has And so we should try to reach the child as young as can be. And again, don't underestimate uh, the age a child can come to Christ. Now, sometimes we do a lousy job in presenting the gospel to a child. And children are baptized before they're really converted. And we give them little metaphors found nowhere in Scripture. Just invite Jesus into your heart and you'll become a Christian and these kinds of things. But um, anyway, we're out of time. But thanks for being with us today. 